without valuing who he is. And who he is is worth praising above every single other person that could ever earn our attention and our adoration. So this morning, I want us to reflect on the verse that talks about how God, when we worship, God dances over us. Today, what I want us to do when we worship is to make God so giddy and gleeful that he cannot help but be brought to his feet, that he invites all of heaven to join with us as we sing, as we worship, as we praise. And maybe there's some things right now in your life that you could be exceedingly grateful for. And if there's not, maybe there's some times where it's more difficult to find those. Think of all that he's already done, that he has brought you to this day, that the strength and endurance you needed to survive until you stood before here in this room has been provided for every single time you needed it. He is working, church. Now I want to work to bring him some worship. So let's pray before we sing together. Father, we want to bring you the utmost joy today, God. We want to bring a smile to your face, God. May you delight in our worship this morning, God. God, I pray that you break apart any barrier that there would be, God, to finding joy in your presence, to finding joy in your house, God, to lifting your name above every other name that there is in our lives and in our world, God. God, I pray that our focus would be solely and undividedly on you this morning, Jesus. May we lift you high, even if it means making ourselves a little bit lower this morning. And it is in your holy and almighty name that we pray. Amen. You spoke those words, let there be light, and it was all. And in that same breath, the stars fell in light. With one voice, creation cries, you do all things well. You do all things well. Be praised, be praised, be praised, be praised, be praised. Praise, be praised, be praised, be praised. 
Aleluya.
inside, from the inside of me, set me on fire, from the inside, from the inside of me, cause all I Your name. 
for you to be glorified, for you to be lifted high. All I want is for you, for you to be glorified, for you to be again but it's yours anyway 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 yours alone now all I want all I want is you now all I want all I want is you now alone 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 I've been through too much to leave you I've been through too much to leave you alone now you're stuck with me now we've been through too much for me to we've been through too much for me to leave you now leave you now you know i know you won't leave me alone now 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 not now not now not now not now Shepherd of my soul, the Lord is the shepherd of my soul, and I shall not want, I shall not want. You leadeth me, you leadeth me, you leadeth me, you've always leaded me. 
It doesn't matter who's at the table. It doesn't matter who's not at the table. You lead, I go. You lead, I go. I follow you until you take me home. Till you take me home. It'll still be my home. God, I thank you for the reality check that you give us, even in worship, that we don't get to sing lyrics, Father, that have no depth, that we don't sing lyrics to you that have no cost. I thank you, Father, for putting it right in front of us today. Thank you, Father, that when there's a room filled of people that are singing, be praised, it's in spite of, sometimes it's because of, in lack of, but it's still you that we are gonna praise. You will be praised, not just in this house, but by these people, God. You will be praised. 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 Forever and always. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for lung, air, and strength in our arms and the ability to either sit or stand in your presence. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We embrace your word today. We embrace your word today, God. We came because we need you. And we know that you want us. We're here, so do your thing. That's the thing, church. It's like, thank God we don't have to tell God how he needs to manage church now. Like, he's got this. If you have felt like you have needed to be in control of so many other things, take the next hour off. You don't need to figure it out or anything else than just to be with him. Just to listen to him. Let's just, just say, hmm, I'm listening to you and I'm going to hear what you have to say. And I am looking and I will see all the things that you have to show me. If I don't want to see it, show me anyway. If I don't want to see it, show me anyway. And God, give your grace and your mercy for us to repent quickly and to embrace fully and to trust wholly. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you going to go? Oh, yeah. oh, sorry. I don't know what that means. Hey, church. <laughs> Listen, the presence of God. Hallelujah. He came before we got here. He knows that this is a place that's been established not just for accolades. He knows that this place has been 
given to him through sweat and tears of all kinds. And he knows that we are a broken yet wanting to be holy people. And he can do so much with that. And like, I don't know what the order is, but I just feel like you should just come and just start the word, Kay? Because, you know, sometimes we, tr- we like switch things off in our minds. Like that was worship and now this is the word. This church is him. It's not worship, it's him. So have him in this next part because he's already here. He gave this word to us just like he gave us worship, just like he gave us power, just like he gave us yielding ability. So kiddos, follow pastors, Lisa and Kevin with the sign, (laughs) and let us stay open and prepared for the word. Hey, as you guys are being seated, just say hi to somebody who's next to you. Just give me an air high five or fist pump or whatever you feel comfortable with. I want to give a shout out to everybody who's online this morning. We love you guys. Thanks for joining us. I want to really encourage you to come on out and be a part of this. And I'm actually going to, we're, we are, we're just going to hop right into the word. We're, I'm, going to, um, I'm going to follow the lead of the spirit. I'm going to follow the lead of what Danielle just said. And I hope you're ready. Is your heart open for the word today? Are you ready for just an encounter with him? It's, the, the, the word is living and active. It's alive. It, it's not something that should just inform us. It's something that gets to transform us. It's, it's not something that entertains us, although it should be uh, informative. It should be enlightening. But more than that, it should transform who we are. That's why we come to the Word. We don't come to the Word to have a a good sermon so we can get the four points so that we can go back and have just a prosperous life. We come to the Word so that we can understand the living Word, the one who spoke it. We're here to understand the one who spoke it. I I say all the time in in, in our discipleship groups, I'm not trying to get through a book. Like when we're, stu- we're studying John right now in our discipleship groups, I'm not trying to get through John. I'm trying to help us to understand the one that John's about. I, I want us to help us fall in love with the one who John fell in love with, uh, and his name's Jesus. And so that's what this word is and continues to be. So since you brought your Bible, why don't you open with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Ma- uh, tw- verse, chapter 28 is the last book of the first our last chapter of the first book of the New Testament is written by Matthew, who's a disciple of Jesus. We've been talking about he was a tax collector. His life was changed. And when we see things from Matthew, we should be excited because we know no matter how far we are from God, that there's always a second chance. My God is a redeemer. He's a God who doesn't just, uh, doesn't just save us. He redeems us for a purpose. Matthew wasn't just got out of the tax collector's booth so that he could actually go to heaven. He got out of the tax collector's booth so he could be a part of bringing heaven to earth. Yeah. You, you didn't just get out of the club. Come on, somebody. So, mm, so you could just go, so, you, so that you could just be all right and not go to jail, not get divorced. Come on. Not, not end up with some problem you got you got saved out of the club so that you could actually be a part of establishing the kingdom of God heaven is such a great icing to this cake but the cake is Jesus the cake is the kingdom that's what we've been talking about we've been talking about this concept of what does it mean to be the we what does it mean to actually be the church 
Because we have so many sociological and cultural concepts, generational ideas. We have ideas that have been passed down to us based off of all sorts of factors that might not be the word. And I get it, because it has affected me as well. And so today, if you need a title for the message, it's Seeking Christ, Not Christianity. We're going we're gonna to keep talking, my friends, about, about the we. We started a few weeks ago, and that's what I love about kind of talking this way. I don't feel like I have to get everything into a, a message. Because like, I know you're taking notes. Somebody say amen. I know that you're able to go back and understand that it's line upon line, precept upon precept. That's how truth is developed in our life. It's not a sermon. It's sermons. It's not a word. It's words that build the house of God in our life. We've been talking about... Uh, what does it mean to be the we, the church, the Greek word ecclesia, right? Which simply means a, mo- a movement of people moving in a common direction for a common cause. We've been kind of joking about, since it's New Year's, what, what would Jesus have as New Year's resolutions for us? Not us individually, us corporately, his bride, his body, his people, his local expression here at Connect. What does he have for us? It's not about doing more to try to somehow influence God to get on our side and move towards our cause, but so that that we can be who he has made us to be, to be who he has died for, the church that he is building. Jesus is building a church. It's what he's doing. We looked at this in, 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 in Matthew 16, a few chapters before this. Where Jesus said, I will build my church. That will means continually, till the end of time. He will build his church. That's what he's doing. And discipleship isn't simply doing what Jesus did. Discipleship is doing what he's doing. Which means God is trying to do something in us. We've been talking about this we workout that Jesus is trying to get us to work out. He's trying to work things out of us that need to get out of us. And work some of him into us that needs to get into us. Not just individually, but how do we do it corporately as a body? And the truth is, this is really going to be, when we grab a hold of this, a conduit for peace. A conduit of joy. And there, there's a release in it. There's, there's this sense of purpose that begins to flow in our lives. It, it's the means through which we, lo- we get to love back on Jesus. Like, if you've ever asked, how do I love on Jesus? We've been talking about it. Not building a life of religion, but building a a life that seeks Jesus. Loving him by worshiping him with everything we've got. This is the bride that Jesus is trying to build. It's what he has created us to be. We only have to decide whether we are going to allow him to create it in us or not. That's the real question. Will we allow... Him to create in us the we that he says the we should be. Not my grandmama, not my friends, not my political party, not my generation, not my brand of Christianity that I got used to. The we that Jesus says we're meant to be. And that's what he's talking about in this text. 
Jesus has already died for our sins on the cross. He already rose from the dead. The stone has been rolled away. He's already appeared to his disciples on multiple occasions. And now he's actually giving him th them this one last final command. It's a command that if you've been in church long enough, you know as the Great Commission. Right? The Great Commission. It's the last statement of Jesus that Matthew records. And he says this. Go therefore and make disciples. You can underline that. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Come on. I, right there. We have purpose. <laughs> Pastor, I don't know what my purpose is. He gave it to you. What a great God we serve. And before we go any further, let me just kind of roll it back for us so that we understand the foundation of where we start in this. The only command in the Great Commission is not go. The only command in the entirety of the Great Commission is make disciples. That's the only imperative command in the Greek right there. Everything else is a participle. While going, this is how to do it. He's already assuming you and I are living life. While you're living your life out here, make a disciple. How do I do that? Well, I teach them the word. I train them up in the word. I baptize them in who you are. I get them connected to you and to your word and to your commands. This is how we do it. But the only command on how you and I get to join him in building his church in what he is doing right now is to make disciples. That means you and I get to be a disciple and we get to make a disciple. It doesn't stop with discipleship just of ourselves. It actually transcends us because the gospel isn't simply about us. The gospel includes us. Jesus didn't just die my death. He died everyone's death. There is a transcendence that has to happen in the heartbeat of men and women of God. That's what he's calling us to right now. So since that is truth, we should be asking, how in the world do we do this? Because this is a little scary. We work this out by being like Christ and not trying to simply be a good Christian. The truth is, Jesus did not come to make Christians. He came to make disciples. Now that may sound semantical to you and I. It may even sound wrong to us because we've identified ourselves for so long that way. But I need us to grab a hold of something. Being a Christian is what someone else has said about us, not what Jesus has called us. See, the Bible says in Acts chapter 11 that it was the crowd, it was other people. The disciples were first called disciples, at, uh, Christians at Antioch. They were first called. Other people were identifying us. Jesus said, I've come to make disciples. And the crowd says, look, they're a bunch of Christians. Now, the issue is when we allow someone else to identify who or what we are, we also tend to allow them to set the parameters for who we should be, how we should act, how we should feel about ourselves. And the challenge is, that I see at least, is that we begin and we have begun in our world to identify ourselves more easily as a Christian than as a disciple. I wonder if when people ask you in your workplace or in your friend group or in your world, what are you? And you probably say something like, I'm a Christian or I'm a Protestant or I'm a non-denominational, Pentecostal, charismatic, tongue-talking, fire, what? No, you probably just say you're a Christian. <laughs> right? 
Now, that doesn't sound like it matters, but whatever we focus on, we give power to. Whatever we value the highest, we will pursue the most passionately. So what does it mean to be a Christian versus what does it mean to know Christ? This is what actually is inside of us. The questions we ask ourselves all the time that direct our lives is, well, what does it really mean to be a Christian? Wrong question. What does it really mean to know Jesus? Right question. The reality is that our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions is pulled towards what others say because it produces immediate affirmation. It produces instantaneous validation. It's why you and I love social media. It's why social media is so powerful because it either reinforces our sense of being right because other people are like liking our pillows, putting hearts, smiley faces, thumbs up, hand clap, clap. That, by the way... That emoji is not pray, it's hand clap, right? But we use it as pray, it's all good. We, we, we're, we're excited, we're, we're great, we're, we're right. Or it inflames our sense of self-righteousness. I can't believe that person would say that, think that, do that. Don't they know that? But both of these things, but the end result of both of these is our world continuing to shape what Christianity should be or shouldn't be, and therefore what we should be, or we shouldn't be. We don't have to only look at right now to see this truth. This truth has been echoed throughout the quarters of time. We simply just haven't learned from it. Murder is wrong unless you're on the Crusades. Slavery and abusing other people is wrong unless it's the accepted means for the economy. Every person is made in the image of God and should be equal unless you want to marry another race or go to school together or eat at the same restaurant. And I know, I, I know we think it's easy that we think that we've evolved well past these things, but we haven't. We've simply changed the narrative of what is or is not acceptable to be a Christian. What others say Christianity and Christians should be still influences us today in major ways. And it shapes what we seek and how we shape our theology, our belief systems, our responses to circumstance and situations. It affects our intimacy with one another and especially our intimacy with Jesus. And it ultimately becomes the main force which shapes and guides our life. We are allowing other people's theology, other people's mentality, other people who we love, like, and have done life with since we were little shape the way that we seek God or actually respond or don't respond to circumstances. How do I know this to be true? Because I get it. We all want to fit in. That's what's going on. We all want to fit in. And let me just say this. There's nothing wrong with that. Because it actually comes from a deep spiritual place. That desire to fit in comes from the spiritual recognition that you and I were made in unity in the garden. For community in unity in the garden. But unfortunately, the fall caused that to be, messed that up. And there's this natural longing for you and I to get back to unity and fitting in. But our fallen nature messes it up by telling us how we should go about doing it. And because we don't want to feel like we are on the outside looking in, it's why we look for groups 
or tribes or churches that look like us, dress like us, have the same color we do, have the same background we've got, vote the same way that we do. Because our soul is telling us anything other than that puts us in danger. And none of us want to be in danger. But you've got to realize that's in you. That's in me. That's in us. That's in the church. It's why churches respond sometimes the way that they do. It's not that they don't love Jesus. It's that the world has continually shape what Christians should or shouldn't be. We're trying to be relevant to what the world says Christianity should be, and we absolutely miss the lie of the enemy that snuck, that snuck in. And the issue is that we end up, all of us, end up living most of our lives like Joseph of Arimathea. Now, I know many of you are saying, well, that's not such a bad thing. Wasn't he the disciple, the dude that gave Jesus the tomb, the, his own tomb? That's a pretty good thing. It is. But read the story. Matthew 19, verse 38 says, After Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea went, who was, listen, who was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews, then went and asked Pilate for the body. He had been a disciple, but secretly for fear of others. It was what others said was allowed, permissible, and impermissible for him that allowed him to say, I, I believe in Jesus, but my life is going to look very different. It was not until he encountered the sacrifice of Jesus, not simply the goodness of Jesus, but the love and the sacrifice that it cost that, stop, that, that stopped him from following and allowing others to determine how he should walk as he walked out with Christ. I think the reality is sometimes the people who are causing the stumbling for us, causing the stumbling for disciples, is actually us. In our modern world, we have, we, we have muddied the waters in an attempt to make our lives look relevant and church look relevant, for our lives to fit in and not to be called out, not be hated on or be called a hater, not to be called a phobic, whatever the blank is that we're afraid of, we've made the church, or at least probably our brand of the church, to be the center for believers' lives. We've made church about serving church, building that church's brand, making it the center of our focus. And I know, look, this is a trap for pastors. I talked about it in my own life last week, but it's not just a trap for pastors. It's actually a trap for all of us who would like our church to be the biggest and the best so that we can brag about it and that we can feel, wor feel worthy and worth fr from it. But the problem is, my friends, what we have seen and what Danielle and I have witnessed over 30 years of ministry is that it causes us to fall more in love with church than with Jesus. And then Jesus simply becomes the means to get out of church what we still think church should be. So we build our brand of Christianity until the shaking comes. Until the shaking comes. Till the attack shows up. Till there's no answer to the problem you've got. 
Until something happens inside the community of faith. Until a pandemic shows up. Until the shaking happens and the brand is gone. And so is the fervor. So is the fervor for Christ. Because we've connected to Christ through our Christianity rather than connecting to Christians through Christ. That's the danger. We're connecting to Christ through our Christianity, through our dues and our dolts, our theologies, our ideologies, through our brand, through our style of worship, through our political views. But Ephesians 5 says Jesus is the head of the church. Oh, don't get me wrong. He's got a body, but the focus isn't on the body. The focus is on the head. The purpose of the body is to live out the purpose of the head. It is never meant to be the focus of anything but the means to reveal the king to everyone. I know some of us can relate to this. Some of you can relate to it because I know you've, some of you have been in the gym lately, been really working out in your body, been pressing the weights, looking good. So I know you've got a closet filled with those clothes that you can now fit into. Man, there have been some holiday parties. You put on the best dress, the best suit. You put on your watch, your bling. You've got the nice shoes on, and you get to the party, and people are like, wow, girl, you, wow, man, you look good, you look good. And they're looking at the body, and you're like, um, excuse me, eyes up here. Excuse me, eyes up here. They're looking at the bling and the watch and the sweat. Excuse me, eyes up here. I think Jesus is saying to the 20th century, 21st century church, excuse me. I know you've got the bling that I gave you. I know the body's finally getting back into shape. Come on, somebody. But eyes up here. Eyes up here. Eyes up here. Eyes up here. I'm the head. See, the issue, my friends, is not passion, it's pursuit. When Jesus says, seek and you'll find... What is it we're seeking? See, the question that still remains is who or what will shape our pursuit? Is it my soul or his spirit? Is it the world or is it his word? Is it Christianity or Christ himself? See, I know this to be true. Not only because I've seen it throughout the years, but I've seen it in my life recently. A few years ago, and many of you know this story, a few years ago... When we had a horrible situation that caused a racial implosion in our country, I was forced to look at what God said about justice. Not my American view, not my overly patriotic view, and if you've been at this church long enough, you know I have a patriotic view of this country. I love this country, I still do, but I had to look at what God said, what the Bible said about justice. And then I had to ask myself this question. Will I risk my Christianity for Christ? Will I risk the Christianity I grew up with for what Christ says to be true? Am I more interested in keeping in step with the people in our church or walking in step as a disciple with Jesus? And these are the questions that all of us are facing with. Is the word shaping my life? And am I willing to risk my brand of Christianity for Christ? And for you, it might not be justice. For you, it may be something that you grew up believing or were taught believing or generational uh, 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 pressures or beliefs that are shaped by our political views. 
But it all ends up in the same place. Come on, church. The call of a disciple is to know Jesus. The call of a disciple, not a Christian. The call of a disciple. What is Jesus making? Disciples. The call of a disciple is to know Jesus, to be like him, to reflect his image and his glory, to walk with him. What does he say in verse 20? I'll walk with you even to the end of the age. What a promise. What a sense of peace. What a sense of security. But knowing him is not found in simply what he did. It's found in what he is doing. What does the word say he's doing? What does his will say he's doing? What are the ways he is walking that out in our world? Connecting with him in these areas will cause our love with him to burst into overflowing. We will learn to learn, we will learn to live from an overflow that no circumstance, no pandemic, no disagreement, no negative post will ever rob from you. How do I know? Because David wrote in Psalm 23, verse 5, he said, You my shepherd, have anointed my head with oil. The Spirit of God is on me, and my cup overflows. He was writing that from the valley of a shadow of death. He was saying, I know that no circumstance or situation can rob this overflow of love I've got because I know you're my shepherd. That's it. That settles it. See, we're going to go through labor pains. we got to get this settled. We're going to go, you think the pandemic was something? It is a beginning, not an end to something. This is, not a, I mean, this is not a doomsday message. This is a training clarification moment in our lives. you got to be trained before the battle comes. This is the key. Discipleship is found in continually encountering him, not simply acknowledging him. Not simply acknowledging his presence in church. Not simply acknowledging his power over circumstance. That is the first step to salvation, acknowledging him. But that's the beginning of the journey and not the end. We see this in Luke chapter 24. Remember, at the end, after his resurrection, he, there are two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They had acknowledged him. They were already called disciples. Jesus shows up next to them. They don't know him. He talks to them through the word, from the beginning of the word to the end of word, to show them who he is. They still are clueless. Until, the Bible says, they sit down together as the we, they break bread, and instantly their eyes are opened. Instantly they see him for who he is. See, there are just some parts of encountering him that we, that we won't see without the we being the we. We might acknowledge it to be true, but it's only when he broke the bread together that they experienced things that they did not know to be true to be true. There's stuff, there's parts of Jesus you and I won't get without the we being the we. There's parts of unity we'll never see. There's parts of breakthrough we'll never see. There's encouragement that we'll lack without us being the we we're meant to be. It's why, my friends, we can't just simply roll through Christianity with this, well, I'm at least going to heaven moment. Heaven is the icing. Jesus is the cake. It's why we must work out this thing out of training and not simply trying. Man, can I just say right off the bat, I want to commend you. I know that most of us in this room, most of us online, are doing our best we're trying really, really hard to get this right. I get it. I see it all the times. 
I see people trying to do good things, make time to read the word, trying to be kind and not lose our mind with that, people, that, that person that drives us nuts at work, trying to keep peace with our families, all while trying to balance work and life and kiddos and friends and expenses and disappointments and hope and living with the we that we call church. And in the end of it, come on, if we are honest and I'm going to be, I'm exhausted. I'm frustrated. There's shame in me because I wish I could do more. But I soothe myself by saying, but at least I'm trying. That's like throwing rocks at a tank and thinking it's going to stop. We see this moment in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast of the Lamb. A wedding feast uh, uh, that Jesus attends. Do you remember the wine runs out? Can I just tell you, I don't believe the host of that wedding uh, didn't try his best. I believe he tried his best to have the right amount of wine there. I believe he was, didn't want to disappoint anybody. I, I think he was trying to make sure everybody was happy and everybody was having a, a good time. Matter of fact, it was a crime for him to run out of wine because it broke the law of hospitality. He could be held liable for not having enough wine. I don't believe he didn't have it because he didn't try. I believe life happened. Life happened. Circumstances happened. People happened. And in the midst of that, he found out one lesson that we, the church, need to find out. It will not be fixed by better programming, better planning, better purposes. It will be changed when Jesus shows up. He needed Jesus to show up. He needed Jesus to show up. This is what happens, my friends, when we try to do our best in the natural with the fruit of the vine. But we need Jesus. We need the fruit from the supernatural vine that comes from an intimate relationship with Jesus and his Holy Spirit. Birthing things in us we never knew were there. Pouring things out of us we can't control. Raising up some stuff and birthing things that we never even saw possible. This is what challenges do to us. They reveal. I just messed up my, my notes for one second because I am 100% sweaty. And somewhere along the way, my computer does not like sweatiness. I got it. I'm coming. What's that, baby? It's life. It's life. It's life. Thank you, honey. It's what challenges do to us. They reveal whether we are trying or trusting. When we lose our job, when our marriage is split, when a pandemic hits, when our life runs out of wine, it will reveal whether you and I are trying or whether we're really trusting. How much of life could change if we simply stopped and realized that no matter how hard we tried, we still need Jesus. Come on. For thousands of years, humanity had tried everything under the sun to overcome sin and to appease the wrath of God. They shed blood. They tithed. They sacrificed. They built buildings. They only wore certain clothes, right, that itched and were horrible. They forsook eating with certain people. They narrowed their friend groups. They only listened to certain right political people. They made for themselves rules 
to keep themselves right. And nothing worked. But in one moment, on one hill, with one act, Jesus changed everything on the cross. The truth is, my friends, that the enemy will be more than happy to keep us trying to do good. Trying to be good Christians. Trying our best to get it right. Because living that way has very little threat to his power. Judges chapter 6, we see it. Gideon is in the bottom of a wine press threshing wheat. That's not what you do in a wine press. But he he must have been thinking, this is the best I can do. At least I'm doing something. A lot of people, other people aren't doing anything. I'm at least doing the best with what I could do. But the enemy was still in the land. The enemy was still robbing the harvest. How many of us feel like Gideons, man? We are doing our best, but our kids are still not walking with Jesus. Anger still gets the best of us. We're still afraid to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with that friend. We're still frustrated with the ground that the enemy occupies in our marriage, in our life, in our marketplace. The reality is this is why we need training. Jesus trained his disciples. Yes, I know there were times that he took them individually away and talked with them privately. But the overwhelming majority of time, he trained them as a we. He trained them to apply his word. Trained them to adjust to their perspective. Trained them how to walk in power. Trained them about who he was and how to establish his kingdom in the world. Training is one of the main tools Jesus uses to work the us out of us, come on somebody, and the him into us. Paul, the great, one of the greatest apostles who wrote the majority of the New Testament, did miracles, planted churches, and Romans 7 says, who will save me from the wretched man that I am? Are you freaking kidding me? He said the wretched man that I am. If he is wretched, what am I? But his answer needs to be my answer. He had tried harder than anybody. Read the word. He had, been, he had been circumcised on the eighth day. He had been spotless when it came to following the law. He had been zealous more than anyone else of his own compatriots. And nothing worked. He finally came and said, the only thing that could save me from the wretched man that I am is Jesus Christ. We don't need to have better religious training. We need to have more training to know who he is. We don't need to know more about the word. We need to know more of who the word is. Look, every Olympic athlete enters the Olympic stadium with a coach. They're the greatest athletes on the planet. But do you know why they need a coach? Because all of them have blind spots just like us. All of them have a level of pain that they won't push themselves through on their own. This is why Jesus says in the text, we have to make disciples. It's a command. Not Christians, not even believers. He says, teach them and train them. This is what discipleship is. It's the difference between being a believer and a disciple. It's actually, am I willing to be trained? Am I willing to actually be exposed? Am I willing to allow people to speak in and things to come out? This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Therefore run in such a way as to win. Everyone who competes competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. You and I do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore run like someone, don't run like someone running aimlessly. Don't box like a boxer punching the air. 
He says, but I discipline my body so that after preaching to someone else, after quoting some scripture on a social media platform to someone else, after telling a friend that they are wrong by using uh, my favorite verse, come on, I don't disqualify myself for the prize. That's why Paul looks at Timothy, his amazing protege, and he says, look, physical training is good. It has value. He doesn't undermine the truth that we need to be in shape. But he says, training and godliness has value in all things. Holding promise now and later. David says in Psalm 144, verse 1, Blessed be the, my, the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and trains my fingers for battle. The question is not will there be battles uh, that we have to fight, only are we trained to win. This is why force and shoulder to shoulder, our men's and women's discipleship groups are so important. We don't have them to give church something else to do. To put something on our website that says we have small groups, connect groups, Bible studies, whatever it is the key word you're looking for. They are there to train you. To get you out of you and to get him into you and I. Because we can have a personal workout by reading the word, by walking with the spirit, by praying on our own. But we are trained in the we. That's what the Bible says. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. For what? To train our butts. Because we got blind spots. Because like every great Olympic athlete won't push themselves to a certain level of pain. This is what Jesus is doing. There's this amazing moment in Genesis 14 when four kings come to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they kidnap Lot and his family. They kidnap the nephew of the father of faith, Abraham. Abraham says, not on my watch. Do you know why he can say, not on my watch? Not only because he understood God was with him. Not only because he understood God had his back, but there was also, this is what the word says, this is what the word says. Notice what the word says. And Abraham had 318 Warriors trained in his house. He didn't just have people he was taken care of. He didn't have people that were just assembled. He didn't have people that were just called a community. He had 318 warriors that understood being in his house meant to be meant they had to be trained for battle. He took on four armies with 318, come on, somebody, 318 men who were trained. I don't have time to get into it all, but those four, the names of those four kings are all names of the devil. I've taught on it before. you got to go back to another sermon. Maybe I'll teach on it again someday. But this is what I know. If there are 318 trained men and women of God, it doesn't matter how many demons. It doesn't matter how many devils. It doesn't matter how many circumstances. It doesn't matter how many negative posts. It doesn't matter how many negative people come against you. When you are trained in the house, you are trained to win the battle to fight. And I love it, by the way, by the way, by the way, church, this is the benefit that we get to give back to daddy. Because not only did they win the battle, the Bible says they took in so much spoils. And this is modern Christianity. We stopped there. Yup, Abraham got rich off of it. Wrong stopping point. The Bible says he had so much wealth, 
He walked into the valley of kings, which he was not allowed to go in, but his victory over the enemy, the victory over the enemy, allowed this man to walk in a valley he was never born to walk in before. When we are born again, the victory at the cross allows us to walk in a valley we were not able to walk in before. And the Bible says he got to meet King Mechizeldek, who was king and priest of Salem, of Jerusalem, who was an image of Jesus, and he didn't just meet him. The Bible says because of his victory, he had a score of wealth and resource to bless the king with. That's Christianity. What can I win on this earth to give back to the king for what he gave me? I'll never be able to buy or repay what he did, but my service to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords should be so passionate, so purposed, that I understand I'm going to be trained for a battle so that I can give back to him what he values most. People. 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 The reality is Trying places the onus on my own force of will. But if our force of will could overcome sin's force of the fall, Jesus would never have had to come. But training places the onus on the Spirit's force of sanctification. He renews my mind. He brings back things to remembrance. He convicts me of sin. He works out Christ in me. All I need to do is surrender to it. It's why when we look in the Word, the Word is a mirror. When I look in the mirror, I don't, st- I, and, and I see myself, I don't think, man, I don't need to work out. When I look in the mirror, I go, you better get your fat butt to a gym. And can I just tell you, I said the same thing when I was in shape. Because I knew training is where strength is developed. And I know that there's a battle coming. Man, that battle may be cancer. That battle may be unemployment. That battle may be uh, internal strife. That battle may be depression. That battle may be your fight for, over gossip or anger or division. That, that, that battle may be something small or it may be something big. There is battles that we will face and there are global battles that are coming. We have to be trained now so that we can stand then. The Bible says, put on all your armor, and when you have done everything, then stand. But you can't stand until you've been trained to fight in the armor. We are acknowledging we have armor without being trained to know how to do it. I love what J. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, one of my spiritual heroes, said, he said, true faith, is neither, uh, is, uh, true faith is neither striving nor struggling to be in Christ, but abiding in Christ. Just abiding. Doesn't it sound like Jesus in John 15? I'm the true vine, you're the branches, if you abide. This is about me and you. But part of me and you isn't just us, it's we. Because I'm not, you're not only my sheep, you're my church. And you could be a sheep individually with me, but you cannot be the church individually with me. Let me give you this last thing, and we're going to go finish up some of the rest of this next week. I know I've said that for the last couple of weeks. But I hope that you're being inspired 
Again, these sermons aren't about condemnation. They're about clarity. It's not correction. It's clarity. What am I called to? One of the battles, one of the greatest battles that I see that undermines the we the most is offense. It's offense. The world, Satan doesn't have to do most things in church. Offense does enough. We mess it up enough. We offend each other because we're human and we're broken and it happens. But because we do not actually do what the word says to handle offense, we allow the enemy to win. And it weakens the we and it poisons the me. We should work this thing out in reconciliation, not simply forgiveness. I think one of the greatest tools of the enemy that he uses to destroy both the unity of the we and the testimony of the we is the weapon of offense. Because offense always produces at least two things in its victims. First is shame. If you are the offender, very often you feel so ashamed that you don't want to face Show your face again in church. You don't want to be around other people who know, who are rolling their eyes, who give you side eye when you pass. You are so ashamed that you have offended and, think, and, and people think that you're a hypocrite that now you distance yourself from the only thing that can actually restore you. Shame happens to all of us. And I think one of the other, other tools that may be, may, may be more powerful is holding on to the offense. We become the offended. And the enemy reminds you how great the offense to you has been. And how many things you've done to, for that person. And how many things you've done for church. And how many things you've done for God. And how many times you've shown up for this. And how you don't deserve that. And the enemy whispers that in our ear. And we get disappointed. And we get frustrated. And we get prideful. And anger rises in our hearts. And in both situations, the enemy begins to whisper in our ears, church just isn't the same anymore, is it? It's not deep enough for someone like you. There's too many cliques, too many hypocrites, and we ghost. We leave without ever dealing with the issue at hand. But wherever you go, there you are. So if you go in shame, you arrive in shame. If you go in offense, you arrive in offense. It weakens the we when we do that. It poisons the me when we do that. This is why Jesus is so passionate about this concept of forgiveness and reconciliation. He doesn't leave us without direction and understanding. Matthew 18 says this, here's what you do. When you're offended, go to that person. There's a good idea. Not passively, aggressively tweet about that person. Go to them. If that doesn't work, take a brother or sister in Christ. Go along. Because their goal is unity just like yours. And if that still doesn't work, then get church leadership involved. Because church's goal is unity and reconciliation. See, here's the truth. We need training to be willing to push through the pain to get to the very first one. Because we don't like confrontation as a people. 
We don't mind having confrontation from the computer screen in our basement, but we don't like confrontation when the confronter can confront back. We need someone, we need training to say, but this is what Jesus is doing. And we need people we're walking through life with who are men and women of God who will go with you for the second thing. And we need to be planted in a church for the third. But unity requires more, my friends, than just forgiveness. It requires reconciliation. It's true that forgiveness is the foundation of Christianity. It's the core of discipleship. It's one of the main purposes of the one who we follow and what he did and what he is doing. He is still the high priest dishing out forgiveness. It is what we celebrate every time we take communion together. That our lives, that this community is founded on the forgiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ. But Luke 17, 1, Jesus says, it is impossible in this world for offense not to come. He did not say that to people in the world. He said it to people who are going to be his disciples. And there's a couple things we need to recognize in that. Number one, offense is a trap. That's actually what that word means, scandalon in the Greek. It's bait in the center of a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. Anybody else get the picture from Star Wars? It's a trap! And since it's a trap, what is the enemy trying to accomplish by trapping us in it? He wants to weaken the we and poison the me. And maybe the most important question is this. What is Jesus doing now? He's applying forgiveness He's pouring out his own blood, his own grace. He's extending grace over judgment. The reality is, now stay with me. Just, this hit me the other day, and I literally drove me to my knees. I was like, God, I, I don't know what to do with this. Here's the reality. When we get caught up with the offender and not willing to reconcile, grab a hold of this. There are a lot of us who will be in heaven that have sinned far greater and far worse than a lot of people who will be in hell. That's what grace looks like. There will be in people in hell who have been much better people than you. God forgive me. This is why he could say, Peter, what are you talking to me about seven times? Seventy times seven is what I'm talking about. Church, if that's what it should be, if that's how we should handle the worst of sinners, what should we do to brothers and sisters who are sitting next to us? How much grace should we ascend? This doesn't mean there's no boundaries. Even kingdom relationships have boundaries. The word is full of boundary stones that mark what a healthy and holy relationship uh, looks like and is established upon. It, and they are unmovable. Proverbs 22, 28 says, do you not dare, don't dare move a boundary stone that's been established. That means there are things from the old that are still true today. Man, we look, it, it's 2023. Marriage is still marriage. Just because everyone else is living together, don't move the boundary stone. Don't move it. 
Just because we grew up with one view of our life and the word says don't move what the word says to fit your comfort zone. If it was good then, it's good now. There are boundaries. We see it in the word, by the way. I'm almost done. Acts 15 said, do you remember this story? Paul and Barnabas have this argument over whether to bring Mark or not. By the way, Mark writes a gospel. So we're not talking about somebody who's just kind of like in the back row at church. He, he's not a creaster, right? A Christmas and Easter Christian. He, he, some, of you, some of you old school understood. He, he, he's Mark. He's Mark. He's Mark. And Paul says, nope. He didn't live up to his word last time. There are some things in Mark right now that need to get worked out. I forgive him, but we're going to have some boundaries right now. Barnabas gets so offended on Mark's behalf that Paul and Barnabas, it's never recorded again, have conversation. There was forgiveness and boundaries in the moment. But we... We have been commissioned with the ministry of reconciliation. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all of us have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the attempt to bring unity back into the center of the relationship. The word picture is a broken vase, a broken pot that's glued back together so that it can be usable again. That is what God is looking for among brothers and sisters. He does not think that there will not be brokenness. He does not think there will not be things that causes cracks in our lives. He's saying... It's not just about forgiveness saying it doesn't affect me any longer. There's a step to say, how can we glue this thing back together for the purpose that God created it for? Not the purpose of keeping peace. Not the purpose of appearances. The purpose of what God created it for. And we see the beauty of this in the relationship with Paul and Mark. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul is in jail and he says in a letter to Timothy, send to me Mark because he is valuable to me. What? But wait a minute, I thought they had a problem. I thought, I thought he let him down. I, I thought he didn't stand up to his word. I thought he was one of those people that said he'd be somewhere and wasn't. Yup, he was. And Paul gave him a time to grow. And Paul gave him a time to change. And Paul gave him the grace to be able to become the man God created him to be. He didn't cut him off. He didn't cancel his culture. He recognized King's culture in him and says he's valuable to me. Let's reconcile. Let's bring the broken pieces back together so we can be useful for the king how different would church life be if we didn't ghost but we actually had grace when we don't work in reconciliation we might exist in forgiveness but our marks miss our paws and our paws are handicapped without their marks and the king and his kingdom miss out on all the glory that the two of them produce when working together with the king. Both the we and the me stay broken. Both people stay unchanged. And ultimately, the king is forced to work alone. Because he is building his church 
He is ministering reconciliation. He, where he is, there is unity. My friends, to know Jesus is the great commandment. And to make Jesus known is the great commission. And discipleship hangs in the balance of them both. And when we are firmly planted in the first, we will more easily do the second. When we know him, the great commandment, we will more easily live out the great commission. You don't have to do it alone. Listen to me, I've been a Mark, and I hope I've been a Paul. And to be honest, I've probably been a Barnabas more often than I wanted to. I know in my own life, I don't have to look far to see how brokenness inside of me can cause brokenness in others. I see it all around me. I know that there are things that I have said or should have said, things I did or should have done that I didn't do that have caused people pain. That's why grace exists. But grace enables you for growth. Grace enables you to have growth. Paul gave Mark grace so that he could have growth. Don't try. Abide. Get trained. Stop trying to be a good Christian. Let's get to know Christ. Let's see what he says and go from there. That's what your pastoral staff is going to do this year. We're going to know Jesus and we're going to make him known. At our own expense, with everything it costs. Because time is short and we plan to occupy until he comes again. I invite you, 318 warriors, to not just be born in this house, but to be trained in it. Let's pray. The old hymn says, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. You are a mighty fortress, Father. My friends, right here, right now, maybe you've been a Christian your whole life, but you've really never, ever, ever stopped to make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. Maybe you've been a churchgoer since you were under the pew as a little kid. I applaud that. I applaud that faith of your parents. I, I celebrate that grandma or that mom, that dad, that uncle, that aunt that brought you. That is some amazing faith. But I'm asking you today. I'm asking you not just to acknowledge him, but to encounter him. To ask him, to surrender to him today. To be willing to say, God, everything that I thought I was, I give to you. Everything that I'm not, I'm asking you to change. And that simply comes by asking him to be Lord and Savior of your life. 
And if you've never done that, we're going to pray in just a moment because the Bible says if I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that he died for me and rose again, then today I'll be saved. And that is an amazing promise of God. And maybe you've never prayed that, and so we're going to pray it today. But maybe you've prayed that before, but did you be honest? Come on. You've been living your life in religion. You've been doing the tally mentality of rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts, good and better. Today's the day to just say, God, I need all your grace. God, I need all your grace. I'm going to stand in your grace today, and I'm going to ask you to grow me. I'm going to ask you to change me. I'm going to ask you to work the things out of me and work you into me. I need you, so I'm surrendering to you as Lord, as Lord, as King of my life. And if that's you, come on, we're going to pray. But you pray, you talk to Jesus. He's here. Just call out to him. Just say, dear Lord Jesus, I need you today. All that I am, it needs you. All that I thought I was, I surrender to you. I'm asking you, Jesus, not only to be my Savior, but to be my Lord. Forgive me of all my sin. Cleanse me of trying to do it my own way. Fill me with your spirit. Make me your child. Let me be a warrior for your word. I choose today to live for your glory. I'm not going to look back, and I refuse to go back. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace that is enabling me to grow. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, give God a shout of glory. Hallelujah, Lord God. Men and women in here online, Father, knowing to make a decision for you. Come on, the Bible says the angels are rejoicing right now. Woo! Oh, thank you for letting me share that word with you today. Hope it inspired you. I'm going to close this out in just a second. Before we go, I want to encourage you to put some feet on this thing. You hear me say it all the time. I love the Sunday amens. But man, then we get the Tuesday omans. How do we get over? How do we get through? How do we learn? Train yourself. Get in the Word. Let the Word get inside of you. just a moment we're going to get a chance to to give just as our one of our last acts of worshiping together you can always give using this envelope here when you filled it out on the way out you can put it in that those gold uh, kiosk on the way out there's a QR code on here that you can give online you can always give automatically but you hear me say it all the time when we talk about giving because the Bible says given it shall be given. We don't give to get. We give because he deserves the glory. I, I want you, as you give today, I want you to do one thing for me if you can, if you can, if you're willing. Picture yourself like Abraham who just received all the bounty, all the blessing that was won when the enemy was defeated. And how much joy he had 
going to the king of Jerusalem and laying it down before him. Give with faith. Give with joy. Give out of abundance of overflow. Greatly he has given. Greatly rejoice today. Maybe as you're filling out these envelopes, as you're thinking about that, I want to ask you, like I just said, to put feet on this. Men, we have a quick video. And it's, I asked some men who go to Forged, what does it mean to be in Forged? And I know not ever, all the guys didn't get a chance to do it, but here is just a snippet of what they said when asked what is Forged all about. Take a look at the screens. being trained. The question is not whether or not, ladies, men, a battle is coming. You're either coming out of a battle, in the midst of a battle, or there's a battle on its way. That's the reality of life. The question is not whether or not you will face the battle. It's how trained will you be to face the battle. Jesus is a mighty warrior dressed for battle. He's our example. Let's get trained. Let's rise up. Let's take back what the enemy has stolen. Because the Bible says when the thief gets caught, he has to give back sevenfold. When the thief gets back. Some of you have children that are not walking with Jesus. When that thief gets caught, I believe that the Bible is going to is saying that come on, seven, he has to give back seven times. Seven, I'm gonna believe seven generations of your grandchildren, your great grandchildren, your great, great, great grandchildren coming to Jesus. Come on. Why are we sitting here and saying, why are we allowing the enemy to determine the terms of our life? Why are we allowing the world to determine who or who we shouldn't be? Why am I allowing Hollywood to determine what is correct or incorrect about my life? Hollywood didn't die. The world didn't give itself for me. Jesus Christ came and died and rose again. He went through my hell so that we could live for him. cares what people say Christianity should be. Let's care what Christ says a Christian should be. A disciple. Amen? Come on, stand with me real quick. If you have your envelope, grab it in your hand. If not, grab something in your heart. Father, we love you. Oh, Jesus. A mighty fortress is my God. A bulwark never failing. 
Oh, the blood of Jesus. Come on, old school. Oh, the blood of Jesus. It washes white as snow. Grace, grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved wretches like us. We once were lost, but now we are found. We were blind, but now we see. Jesus, you're worthy. Jesus, you're worthy. Jesus, you're worthy. Let our worship, let our word, and let our ways be glorifying to you. We bow our will to the will of the Father. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you, church. I love you. Go and change the world. Be a disciple. Love on Jesus.